0: I forever
1: Hello, and welcome back to A Reason for Hope. I'm your host, Mario Costabile, and this is a podcast which will deliver hope with some formation, where we explore the areas of our faith to better understand who we are as Catholics. Our topic today is on the Eucharist, the source and summit of all Christian life. The Eucharist, it is a sacrament which Jesus himself has left us. Packed with supernatural grace, it is life-giving. We're going to explore its relevance in our culture today. It seems that the belief of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist has lost its favor amongst most Catholics. We're going to share with you what the Church is doing about this. Our guest today is Bishop Andrew Cousins, the chairman of the USCCB Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis, and the leader of the National Eucharistic Revival. This is going to be cool and fun and informative. So welcome to A Reason for Hope. And here we go. Hope last forever. Hey Dave, what's going on? How are you?
2: Doing well. Thank you, Mario.
1: Yeah, it's good. Good. Uh, I'm super excited for today's podcast. Uh, we actually have an amazing interview with Bishop Cousins, who's the bishop in charge of the Eucharistic Revival uh, that's being promoted by the U.S. bishops. So it's 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 a big deal. Awesome. Uh, and it's only, yeah, it's only the second bishop we've ever had on, on Reason for Hope podcast and Rise Up Live. So I'm super excited about this.
2: Yes, and I guess that gives us an opportunity to talk about the Eucharist too. Yes,
1: yeah, I'm super excited. I love talking about the Eucharist. But before we get into all that, Um, I'm happy to announce that Array of Hope will be playing a big part in the revival. We've developed this event called Behold, which has been endorsed by Bishop Cousins himself, uh, which is kind of cool. It's a three-part encounter with Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, We're also collaborating with the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal on it, which is kind of cool. Love them. Uh, Love them, too. Each night, we'll have the Array of Hope music team providing powerful worship music, along with talks, adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, and then... The Sacrifice of the Holy Mass. Each night will also highlight a Eucharistic saint or miracle, and the themes are specifically chosen to reach the needs and longings of contemporary men and women. So Dave, do you want to discuss those themes? Yeah, sure, for sure. Uh,
2: the first night is on the Eucharist in healing, and it addresses the, the desire for wholeness. Uh, many people are aware of their brokenness. I think everybody's longing for wholeness. So do we realize that Jesus' saving mission is a mission of healing? and that the Lord calls us to come to him in the Eucharist to receive the life and healing he wants to give us. So that's the first night. The second night is on the Eucharist and awe, and this focuses on the yearning for transcendence. This is clearly something that we see, that um, that people are, are looking for transcendence in their life. And they might be running to a lot of different places to try to find it. So do we realize that when we come before Christ in the Eucharist, we are indeed on holy ground, that we're coming before God himself, the great Mm -hmm. I am who am, Mm -hmm. and that we should be struck with awe and fear Mm -hmm. in his presence. So that's the second night. And then the third night is on the Eucharist and communion, which really centers on the desire we have for relationship, for, for connection. So do we appreciate the incredible invitation that we are receiving when Jesus bids us to come to him? to become one with him in mm-hmm. the Eucharist? And do we approach in a worthy manner? Like, are we ready to enter into that communion? Mm. Uh, so, so those are the three themes. And they're really, I think, important themes. And I think they're going to strike people um, where, where, they're, where they're at with regards to what they're looking for and yearning for in their life.
1: I'm super excited about this because we're doing a very first behold uh, for the Diocese of Metuchen for their Lenten mission.
2: Yeah, that's going to be great going to be great. Yeah. So um, some of our listeners may not have heard about the National Eucharistic Revival. Mm-hmm. So why is this something the bishops are calling for? You know, what do you think prompted it?
1: Well, um, back in February, I don't know if you remember, in 2019, the Pew Research study found that seven out of ten Catholics do not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. This is astounding. Most people don't don't really know what the church teaches about transubstantiation, for example. And suddenly, more than one out of five Catholics reject the belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, even when knowing what the church teaches. Ah. To add to that, roughly 30% of Catholics never attend Mass, and that number has been sharply growing. While only 36% of Catholics attend weekly, the rest attend anywhere from once to twice a month to once or twice a year. So this is a real crisis, especially since the Eucharist is the source and summit of Christian life.
2: Yes, it is indeed. And maybe we should discuss why the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. Um, first, I think we need to know what it is we believe the Eucharist is, or rather, better said, who the Eucharist is. You mentioned the word transubstantiation. Um, that. Comes from St. Thomas Aquinas. Basically, in order to understand what the church teaches about the Eucharist as the real presence of Christ, as his body, blood, soul, and divinity, we need to understand the difference between what Aristotle called substance and what he called accidents. So the substance is what something is. Okay, so the whatness of a thing. So you're a human being, that's your whatness or your substance. But then there's accidents. That's, you might say, your howness, your, your sort of like characteristics. So, for a human being could have brown hair, could have blonde hair, could have red hair, uh, could be tall, could be short, but they're still a human being. They're still substantially a human being, though they have various characteristics, right? So, what St. Thomas Aquinas is saying is that there's been a, at the, at the Mass, when the priest says the words of consecration— there is a change that's trans in the substance that's substantiation. But the howness, the accidents remain the same. So it still looks like bread, still tastes like bread, still looks like wine, still tastes like wine, but it's no longer bread and wine because what it is, the substance has changed. So many people don't know that that's indeed what Catholics believe about the Eucharist that it is no longer bread, it is no longer wine, though it retains the appearances of bread and wine, that that it is now Jesus himself. And by the way, it's the whole Jesus, his body, blood, soul, and divinity. And this is another important point because when we talk about the son of God becoming man, what we mean to say is that, that Jesus has two natures. Jesus has a divine nature and a human nature. But Jesus' human nature, because he has a full human nature, has a human body and a human soul. Okay? And so when we receive Jesus in the Eucharist, we receive all of him. That We receive the divine person that is totally human and totally divine. That's mm-hmm. why we say body, blood, soul, which refers to his human nature— And divinity, Mm. which refers to his divine nature, okay? In other words, we receive the whole Jesus, and that's really important. But, But who is Jesus? And that's something we also have to remember. He's the eternally begotten Son of the Father, the divine Logos. He's the God who created the universe, through whom all things were made, He is the God that holds all things in being. Because what are we talking about here? We're talking about the God that is greater than the universe. We're talking about the God who is more vast, more huge, more powerful than as far as the universe extends. Infinitely more. That is the God who becomes man in Jesus. And then takes on the appearances of bread and wine in the Eucharist. So when we come in the presence of the Eucharist, we're coming into the presence of the God that is greater than the universe, Mm -hmm. the ineffable, the infinite God. We're coming into the presence of the great I Am. And remember, when Moses knew that it was the Lord in the burning bush, what did he need to do? He needed to cover his face, right? There was this sense of being in the presence of the Almighty God. Right. So, so I think that we have to like tap into this because so many people don't know this, and this is very important if we're going to understand why the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. It's the, it's the source and summit because it's God, and God is the source and summit of life, right?
1: Well, I think that's true, Dave. I mean, people just don't know what the Eucharist is, and they also don't know what the Mass is. And we need to know that too.
2: We need to know that the Mass is primarily a holy sacrifice. The Mass is offered by a priest. A priest's fundamental function is to offer sacrifice on behalf of the people.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: So you need a priest for a sacrifice. You need a victim for a sacrifice. There's something that is sacrificed. Okay? And then you need an altar on which to sacrifice it. Jesus himself is the great high priest who offers himself as the victim, the sacrificial and paschal lamb, on the altar of the cross. But the mass is a renewal of that self-same sacrifice. The self-same sacrifice of Christ offered for us and for our salvation, renewed and made present on the altar at every Mass. And in fact, it's interesting because the Mass itself, if you were to walk through the Mass, it almost is a kind of walking through of the Passion of Christ. It's a it's a walking through of Holy Week, and so like there's this sense of that we are now entering into Jerusalem, but what's going to happen in Jerusalem? Jesus is going to be sacrificed, right? When the when the um, obviously the priest utters the words of consecration, but the priest is Christ, he is another Christ by virtue of his ordination, and so he acts in the person of Christ, offering what? Christ Mm. on the altar of sacrifice. And when the host, by the way, the word host comes from a Latin word, which means victim. When the host is raised, that's Jesus being raised up on the cross. And when the chalice is raised, that's Jesus's blood being shed, poured out for you and for me. This is important. It's not symbolic, it's a renewal, a re-presenting, not just a representation, but a making present again of the very sacrifice of Calvary. By the way, it was customary that before Mass, people would unite themselves to the affections and intentions of Our Lady of Sorrows at the foot of the cross. Why? Because you were going to stand there with her Mm. when the Mass happened. You are going to be right there with Mary and the beloved disciple at the foot of the cross. I think we've lost this. So because the Eucharist is Jesus, it's the source of our lives and everything in it. And the Mass is the very sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the source of our salvation and of all graces. The Eucharist, therefore, is the source of the Christian life. But it's also the summit, because what is the ultimate end that we're all striving for? For union with God in heaven. The beatific vision, to be in his presence, to be one with God. The summit is the peak or the goal. The goal of the Christian life is communion with God. And what happens at Mass? We get to become one with Christ in Holy Communion. We take him into ourselves and become one with him. In a sense, it's an anticipation of what will happen for all eternity in heaven. That communion that we receive is the summit. Mm. And in fact, it's interesting in the scriptures, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom and the church, and sometimes the individual souls referred to as the bride. And yet right before we receive communion, what is the thing that the priest says? Happy are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb." lamb. What's the supper of the lamb? It's the wedding feast of the lamb. That's a direct quote from the book of Revelation. Why? Because it's us becoming one with our divine bridegroom. Mm -hmm. And that all speaks of what the goal of earthly life is. Ultimately, it's to be one with God in heaven. So,
1: uh, I and mean, this is important stuff, And I think it's really good that you explained and articulated the importance of the Eucharist its origins of the Eucharist and why it's the summit of the teachings of our church, right? Yeah. Um so really, with this Eucharistic revival, what the bishops are trying to do is to draw attention to the Eucharist. You know, it's a three year plan that they have culminating, right. I think, in two thousand twenty four, you know? so uh and and we're just trying to with our behold program is to draw people uh to what the bishops have already proclaimed in this revival right so uh i'm excited about our program and uh what could, what can they expect at our behold program in addition to what you explained uh really what can they expect spiritually can can it can the heart be moved can the soul be uh, drawn to the Eucharist? Are we going to catechize as well? Right. Are, are we going to give them a spiritual uh, experience? You know, maybe you could articulate the hope of what we're trying to do there.
2: Well, I think typically our music ministry is going to really try to draw people in to create an atmosphere and mm-hmm. an environment in which people can be open sure. to the experience. yeah. And that they themselves Will feel their hearts uplifted and touched by the music ministry. And
1: music does that. It it, it invokes uh, the sensories to really uh, be um, to surrender. You know, to be vulnerable. Yep. You know, th- have the music. You know, uh, surround them.
2: And-, and then once we have that kind of atmosphere, um, I'm going to give a talk, right. and and the talk is going to be substantive. It's going mm-hmm. to be thoughtful. But it's, it's going to be evocative, too, because mm-hmm. it's going to really draw them in, um, whoever's attending, to understand this particular aspect yeah. of of the Eucharist. And, and I think people are going to be really um, deeply moved by that, because yeah. I think people are yearning for wholeness, for relationship, for transcendence. They want more, and they can't. Have anything more right. than our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament? He's all they need. Right. Jesus is the one who's going to have the encounter with them. Mm-hmm. We're we're kind of arranging the encounter. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're making the date, mm-hmm. and then Jesus is going to. But
1: there is also going to be a, a night dedicated toward healing. Right?
2: We talked about. Yeah, we're know. actually going to have a healing service with a eucharistic healing service so i think is going to be people really need power? to
1: be healed and people are broken and 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 the eucharist offers that, that so power.
2: imagine this we're going to first talk about jesus's saving mission as a healing mission we're going to go in my talk i talk all about um what we mean by jesus saving us and mm-hmm. and, and how he wants to offer us um wholeness and healing and talk about different yeah. stories from the gospels yeah. in which he does that it's great and then what people are eventually going to have the opportunity to do is to come up one by one and the priest will have the monstrance and be standing at the, the foot of the altar and there'll be a kneeler there and people can come up one by one. And what I encourage them to do is to bring whatever it is, whatever area of their life that they feel broken Mm. and in need of healing to bring that before the Lord and to say, heal me, Jesus, save me, Jesus, and I, um, you know, you'd be surprised what people do. Some people like will just their face will they'll just go down and they'll they'll fall down on their face before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Some will look up and stare right into mm-hmm. the Lord's face in the Blessed Sacrament. Some will grab the humeral veil as if they're touching the garment, like the like the woman with the hemorrhage who was who said, "If I only touch the hem of His garment, I will be healed." Mm-hmm. And then what I also encourage people to do is if they don't feel like there's a particular area of their life in which they need healing because they feel a sense of woundedness or brokenness, they undoubtedly know somebody who needs healing. Mm. So like the four friends that bring the paralytic to Jesus, I encourage them to be like those four friends. Mm -hmm. And so when they come before the Lord and they kneel before him in the blessed sacrament, that they're actually bringing someone to the Lord that they know need healing. Mm, it's awesome. So I, this is Beautiful. a powerful, powerful yeah. thing.
1: So this is, this is really uh, fantastic, Dave, and I want to let our listeners and our viewers know that uh, they can book the Behold Project, the Behold event uh, for their diocese or their parish. It's something that a Ray of Hope is committed to, working in tandem with the Eucharistic revival, uh, and it's happening now. So please look us up, go to our website, go to the experience page, and go to click on Behold, and you'll learn all about it. Yeah, fantastic. Please do that. Yeah, 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 great. Great hanging, Dave.
3: Hey, everybody. This is Who's That Saint with me, Alanis, where I test your saint knowledge by giving you three clues from a saint's life for you guys to guess before the big reveal. Clue number one. Beginning at the age of 13, the saint testifies to have seen visions of Saint Michael the Archangel that would continue on for the rest of her life. Her visions were said to guide her and give her direction on how to support the French King Charles VII against the English. We've got a soldier saint. Very interesting. I wonder who this saint is. Who's that saint? Clue number two, the Catechism of the Catholic Church directly references this saint four times throughout it, most of which pertain to her zeal, her martyrdom, and my personal favorite, her witty comebacks whenever she was interrogated about the faith. Who's that saint? Clue number three, this saint was falsely branded as a heretic which resulted in her being burnt at the stake. She died at the age of 19 and was declared a martyr. All right, those are all of the clues that I have for you. Who's that saint? Well, if you guys guessed Saint Joan of Arc, you are correct. Saint Joan of Arc was born on January 6th, 1412 to pious parents in France. And she was said to have visions of Saint Michael, Saint Catherine, and Saint Margaret. And they all began as quite personal and general messages, but they soon evolved into the direction of driving the English from French territory. St. Joan of Arc fought in battle and is now seen as a symbol of bravery and courage, not only in the Catholic Church, but also in the eyes of our secular culture. Her feast day is May 30th. St. Joan of Arc, pray for us.
0: Ooh, who's who's
4: hey there, welcome back to The Music Corner. AOH Music, the music entity of Array of Hope Ministries, is a month into the debut release of our first single, One Life. You can find AOH Music on your music streaming platform of choice, Apple Music, Spotify, etc. And the official music video for One Life is available for viewing on YouTube. All these links are in the episode's show notes. And definitely follow us on YouTube because we'll be releasing an unplugged video version of One Life very soon this past january the band traveled to los angeles california to headline the one life la event we spent about two days in la beforehand sightseeing and gathering video content for future music releases it was an enormous blessing to be out there with many people from the array of hope team on the day of the one life event it was a great reminder of the power and beauty that can be found in people coming together for a common purpose namely that of celebrating the sanctity and dignity of all human life created first and foremost by god it was a great honor to be able to perform our song one life which shares the message of honoring god's creation and reverencing the beauty of this one life we get to live offering ourselves back to god
1: Bishop Andrew Cousins grew up in Denver, Colorado. He is a graduate of Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Bishop Andrew Cousins was ordained into the priesthood on May 31st, 1997. He was appointed an auxiliary bishop at St. Paul and Minneapolis on October 11, 2013, and then appointed the Bishop of Crookston, Minnesota on October 18th, 2021. He currently serves as the chair of the board for NET Ministries at St. Paul's Outreach, the Institute for Priestly Formation and the Seminary Formation Council. Additionally, Bishop Cousins is the chair of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis, where on behalf of the bishops, he is leading a three-year national Eucharistic revival that began in June of 2022. Please welcome Bishop Andrew Cousins. So, hello, Bishop Cousins. How are you?
5: Well, I'm so, I'm very well, and I'm grateful to be with you, Mario.
1: I am grateful to be with you as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's always exciting to have a bishop on our program, uh, and I'm excited today to share the faith with you and fellowship. And I have a lot of questions to ask you. I'm super excited. But before I get into all that, um, I'd like to know a little bit about uh, uh, our guests' past, uh, you know, how they were as young children. Were you brought up in a Catholic family? family or are you a cradle Catholic? Tell me a little bit about the young Bishop Cousins.
5: Yeah, so um, my life has a very interesting beginning in that um, when my mother was 20 weeks pregnant with me, uh, her water broke and the doctor she went to told her that the child in her womb was severely deformed and that she should oh. induce labor and uh, because this child will never live outside of the womb. And my mother um, said, you know, we accept whatever God has given us. And, you know, as long as this baby is allowed to live, we'll allow him to live. And the doctor said, you, you don't understand this child is a freak. And my mother said, you don't understand. I want a new doctor. <laughs> and so uh, she, uh, she ended up getting a new doctor and she spent the rest of the pregnancy on uh, bed rest. And I was born a month early, but and with severe allergies, I had eczema. And so they they figured that's what was happening. I was allergic to the ambionic fluid. And so I would kick and break the sack. Wow. But, uh, but other than that, I was healthy. And, uh, so I really grew up in a, in a great Catholic family. My parents weren't able to have more kids after me. So we were two of us, but then my, um, we adopted an African-American brother. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I grew up in the family that was always around the church. You know, we are, have a lot of memories of cleaning out those little vigil lights at at, at at the church, you know, to get the little bottom things out of them, because that was our Saturday chores. And uh, close to the priest at our my parish growing up, and I think I was in first grade when I said I wanted to be a priest like Monsignor Barry, and, and wow. I was my parish priest. Wow. And he actually had me make my first communion early because he found out he was going to retire from the parish. And so I started serving mass for him when I was in first grade. And then, uh, yeah, that idea just always stayed with me. I, you know, I, I did a lot of normal things growing up, uh, went to public schools and uh, um, had my own struggles. But if you would, at any point in my life, if you would have known me well enough, I would probably told you, well, I'm about being a priest, you know? Wow. And wow. Uh, so that good Catholic upbringing, you know, where it really, f- allowed me to discover this kind of foundational truth of life that as my, as my mom and dad used to tell me, they would say, you know, God saved your life because he has a a plan for it. And your job is to figure out what that plan is. Wow. And, uh, that was always just a part of my psyche. Of course it's true of every human being, right? Mm -hmm. But it was a part of my psyche growing up that helped me to hear the Lord's call to priesthood.
0: Wow.
1: What a witness your mom uh, gave, uh, not only to the doctors. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, that took a lot of courage. Often people would just take the advice of the doctor and abort, right? So uh, right. really following uh, God's inspiration and the plan for her and you, it's beautiful. What a beautiful story, Bishop. I've spoken to a lot of priests and I've spoken to uh, several bishops and it's it's unusual. You sort of had a calling early on. You sort of knew innately that you had this calling that, you know, you were going to be a priest, which is really kind of cool.
5: It is. You know, for me, it was always connected to the Eucharist. I, st- I have a very distinct memory of my parish priest teaching me to genuflect ah, when he was teaching me to serve mass Beautiful, and explaining to me why Jesus was there in the tabernacle. Mm. And so I, I always just had a sense of the Lord's presence in the Eucharist. And that was really, you know, as I grew, I always wanted to be close to Jesus in the Eucharist. I, I You know, I wasn't a perfect kid in any way. So I had my share of struggles in high school and things like that. But deep down that was always there.
1: Wow. Well, so, um, of course you went to seminary. Where did you go to seminary?
5: Yeah. So I, I ended up going to Benedictine college in Atchison, Kansas. Oh, sure. Uh, I thought about college seminary, but decided not to do that at the time, even though I was still thinking about priesthood. And so okay, uh, had a great experience there, got to know some of the monks, almost became a monk, but decided not to. And at St. Benedict's Abbey. And then, uh, uh, I served with a group called Net Ministries, which is a, a Catholic youth ministry based out of the Twin Cities. So of course, right after college, of course, sure, I served as a missionary for Net. Wow! And then, uh, while I was on Net, I found out about a fraternity of priests in the Twin Cities, uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis, called the Companions of Christ. That was just getting founded, and so I ended up joining this fraternity of diocesan priests and did seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. It was ordained in 1997 as a priest of the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis, and as a member of this fraternity of diocesan priests called the Companions of Christ.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, yeah, we have mutual friends there. Archbishop Hebda, I think when I spoke to you initially, uh, uh, he was very kind to me as a person and very uh, generous uh, to a ray of hope. Uh, When we first started in the Diocese of Newark, he would come to our events and encourage me and uh i think he came to two or three concerts which was really astounding and he spoke to me several times so we have that common friendship and admiration for uh, s- such a great bishop up there minnesota
4: hey if you're enjoying this interview be sure to check out the full video version on the array of hope channel subscribe for free at watch.arrayofhope.net then download the app by searching array of hope on your mobile device apple tv or roku
1: So you became a priest, obviously. So how long were you a priest before you became a bishop?
5: So uh, in 1997, as I ordained to the priesthood, I served in a couple parishes, did a stint in Rome, uh, working on a doctorate in theology. That's where I met Archbishop Hebda. Actually, we were both in Rome together. And um, then I came back in 2006 and I taught at the St. Paul Seminary for about seven years. And then in 2013 is when uh, I got the call to become an auxiliary bishop in the Archdiocese mm. of Saint Paul-Minneapolis, right, so, right? Got that that you know, faded call from the papal nuncio representing Pope Francis. Wow!
1: And, so, what was that like? Were you uh, were you, like surprised? Were you shocked? Do you got the right person? <laughs> what was that like? You know?
5: Yeah, nobody ever expects that call is going to come that day. You know, and uh, so even if the thought might cross your mind that it might call some call might come someday, you never think it's today. And plus, four. and plus you're, you know, I mean, you're a young guy. I mean, you know, so you, I was, I was 45 when it happened. Yeah. So I was on my way to the, to a meeting with a, a seminary and I was, I teach at the seminary my cell phone rang and mm-hmm. I saw it was a Washington DC number. And I thought it was my friend, Rob Panky, who's a priest in DC. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, so I didn't answer it. I let it go to voicemail cause I'm on my way a meeting. <laughs> and then afterwards I checked my voicemail and it was, um, Sister Mary Joanna Ruland, who's a religious sister, who was the papal nuncio's secretary, and I knew her because she was from St. Paul, and she was to be my sister's roommate before she was in the convent. And so, uh, um, so I thought, well, I wonder what she she said to call the papal nuncio as soon as possible. I thought, I wonder what she told the papal nuncio about me that he wants to ask me a question or something.
1: Did you think you and were in so trouble? Do you think you were in trouble?
5: No, <laughs> <So laughs> she would call me to, like to consult on things, and so I thought maybe he he, he wanted something. So I called back and then they, they said she wasn't there and they, I, they asked my name and I said Andrew Cousins and they said, oh, we'll put you right through to the papal nuncio. Well, then I started to get a little nervous. Well,
1: right. <laughs> what did I do?
5: He, he immediately said, he said, is this Father Cousins? I said, yes. He said, how are you? I said, I'm fine, your excellency. And then he said, I need to inform you that our Holy Father, Pope Francis, has nominated you to be the Auxiliary Bishop of St. Paul in Minneapolis. Do you accept? <laughs> <laughs> It's like that, you know, and then your whole life flashes before your eyes and you think, wow, okay, this is that moment. <laughs> that's awesome.
1: That's awesome. Yep.
5: So it, it, it's that quick,
1: huh? They kind of ask you and you got to respond right away. I mean, that's like.
5: Yeah, you can, you can ask for time to speak to your spiritual director if you want. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, you're asked to respond right away and they encourage you to respond right away.
1: So you're you've been a bishop now nine years. Uh, so tell me, you know, yeah. uh, what has it been like? What have been your greatest joys, and and what have been your greatest challenges? You know, uh, uh, given what's going on in the church, Do you know, tell me a little bit about that.
5: Well, if you know anything about the history of the Archdiocese of Saint Paul, Minneapolis, you know that I was born in the midst of a, of a crisis, the greatest crisis that happened in the history of the Archdiocese. So we, um, you know, had been in the press. Ah, uh, for about a week before my before I got that phone call, o- over the archbishop had been in the press over the dealing um, yeah. of a couple of priest cases, and you know we had a kind of perfect storm. We had a, a chancellor and and she photocopied a bunch of files and quit, and then went to Minnesota Public Radio and brought all those files to Minnesota Public Radio, and they did uh, really months of stories. And so right, at, right as that was beginning, it was a week old and there was a big kind of story brewing about a priest who had been arrested in 2012 for sadly abusing three boys. And um, so right in the middle of that, I got the call to become a bishop. And so uh, the image when I was under papal secret, you know, you're waiting for the announcement and you know you're going to be a bishop and nobody else does. I, I was praying with um, that image of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right before they go into the fiery furnace and they say... to to king nebuchadnezzar they he he says who is the god who will save you from this fiery furnace and they say well we don't know if god will save us but but we know we won't serve your false gods Mm. and uh and so that was really kind of the way i entered to be a bishop and you know it was really uh, a full two years of crisis uh you know i became the spokesperson for the archdiocese through that had to deal with a lot of difficult issues it all kind of came to a culmination when the archdiocese was criminally charged in 2015 and then the other two bishops resigned. And so I was the one guy left and that's when Archbishop Hebda was named as the administrator to St. Paul, Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And so we were bankrupt at the time. We were under criminal charges. Um, and I had to work with Archbishop Hebda to help bring the archdiocese out of all that. So I, I learned my way around the sexual abuse crisis in a very kind of baptism by fire sort of way. And, you know, there was a lot of, it was a lot of dark days in those first couple of years. I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with the chancery before I became a bishop. So I didn't have anything to do with getting us into that situation, but I was just the one who God uh, put there to try to help get us out of it. And, um, I learned a lot about God's faithfulness and God's goodness. And that if you're a man of principle and you try to follow those principles and that God will work. And, uh, Really learned a lot about the importance of my prayer life. I already had a good prayer life, but I don't. I know I wouldn't have made it if I didn't have a prayer life during that time. Mm. Um, but the other thing I learned is about the goodness of God's people. I thought when I first became a bishop because the archdiocese of the press was so bad. I thought when I go to parishes, people are going to yell at me. You know, I didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> people were always so good to me, and and God's people are so faithful, and they love the church, they love the Eucharist, and they really do are able to see beyond sort of the crisis to see that um, God is still God and he still works and the church is still needed. And so I, I experienced that kind of wonder in spades and just God providing the things that I needed in order to help walk through what were, you know, certainly in the most difficult years of my life.
1: Wow. That's uh that's amazing. Uh, so fast forward to today, uh, so the uh, the USCCB uh, appointed you to run and spearhead this national Eucharistic revival, which is really, re- really exciting. And I want to shift gears a little bit about So what what was the thinking on the bishop's behalf on uh, why this revival is needed?
5: Yeah, it's kind of a, it's a very interesting story because, um, so it really began in the November meeting of 2019. Mm-hmm. And that was right after that Pew research study had come out that seemed to say something like 70% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. That's, right. That's right. You know, regardless of the flaws of that study, it was a shocker, you know. It's
1: an eye opener. And
5: it was. And the bishops were all talking about it at that November meeting. And it was Bishop Barron who was at that point still chair of the committee on evangelization and catechesis and he sort of developed this idea that maybe as bishops we should do some kind of project to help renew faith in the eucharist and he began to put some proposals together but at, at that meeting i was elected chair elect of the committee on evangelization and catechesis so i served under bishop barron for a year and then i took over and um so he involved me in these early meetings that happened in January and February of 2020 where we we brought bishops uh leaders of the committees together to talk about doing something as a bishops conference not just one committee but all the committees together doing something that would bring about a renewal of the eucharist and everybody was convinced we should do it we had a really good plan and we were going to bring it to the bishops in June and then in March uh, something happened and that was COVID. <laughs> and so the whole world shut down for several months, as you remember. Yeah, yeah. And so the June meeting never happened. And so we weren't able to bring this to the bishops until November of 2020, which is when I became the chair of the committee. Mm-hmm. And when we brought it to the bishops in November, they were even amazed that we had been thinking about this before COVID. Because of course, the crisis of having people not be able to go to mass for some time had really dramatically affected all of us and, this idea that we needed a Eucharistic revival was was well accepted by the bishops at that moment, and so it was really that crisis that that started it. Um, and then, you know, as chair, I was asked to sort of build it, and so I really spent most of 2021 building this three-year revival, and that's where we did a lot of listening sessions with people around the country, evangelistic leaders, diocesan leaders, parish leaders. You know, if we were going to do a nationwide initiative to revive faith in the Eucharist, what would that look like? And that's where we came up with a three-year plan. That's where we decided we should have another national Eucharistic Congress. All those things.
1: Yeah, I mean that's awesome, and and, and this is the summit of our or the teachings of our church, right? The Eucharist, as you shared, and I have a love for it as well as you do. Uh, and um, I think there's a, a lack of understanding, really. Uh, the statistics show that people really don't understand what the Eucharist is, let alone believe in it. Um, which leads to my next question. So sometimes, I mean, I have a lot of colleagues, friends, even family members, like you know, oh, you know, I don't like going to mass. I don't really get much out of it. It's like, oh, it's so boring. This and that. And I say, well, look, you know, the bottom line is that you know we're receiving the grace of the Eucharist. You know, that's like really important, guys. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes it's like, you know, the, the non-reactional f- uh, response, you know, it's like the, they don't get what I'm saying. So what would you say to someone that says to you, Bishop, you know, i you know, I'm not really getting anything about mass. How can you, what would your response be in conveying the importance of receiving that grace from the Eucharist?
0: Mm-hmm.
5: You know, I, there's a, a hundred different ways to start with that question, <laughs> um, Sometimes I, I, I would joke with the high school kids. I would say, you know, my mom, she says football's boring. And it's because she doesn't understand what's happening. Right. <laughs> right.
0: Exactly. And
5: my dad does not find football boring. Um, and I, if we understood what was happening at Mass, and if we understood who was present, and what a difference that could make in my life, and if people come to understand that, then everything changes. And you see this in the Bible, and and that's always where I go. And it's really the role we talk about with the Eucharistic Revival, we talk about, we're about two things. We're about encounter and mission. Mm. And so the the key is, is, has a person had an encounter with Jesus in the Eucharist? You know, there are lots of people, I always, um, there's so many stories in the Bible you could go to, but one of the ones I always go to is that famous story of the woman who has a hemorrhage And she gets in her head. She says, if I could just touch the the hem of his garment, I know I'd be healed. And so Jesus is walking along in a crowd of people, a lot of people touching him. And she reaches into that crowd and she touches the hem of Jesus's garment and she's healed. Yeah. And Jesus feels that power goes out from him and he stops and he says, he looks around in the crowd and says, who touched me? Touched me, yeah. And the apostles say, well, what do you mean who touched you? There's all these people around you. Lots of people are touching you. Right. But Jesus knew that someone touched him with faith. And because she had faith and she knew he was God and she knew the power of God, she knew that she could receive healing through him
0: mm-hmm.
5: because she had faith.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: And that, that's what makes all the difference. She, lots of people touched Jesus that day. Only one was healed, right? How many times, you know, hundreds of people saw Jesus teach or perform a miracle and they went home and they said, oh, that was interesting, <laughs> Right. But then you have these encounters where Jesus heals that woman, or, or when Jesus multiplies the fish and Peter looks at him and says, leave me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And then Jesus says to Peter, come and follow me. Mm. I'll make you a fisher of men. Peter can't walk away.
0: Mm-hmm. He
5: can't because he's, been, he's encountered God. And everything is different when you encounter God. Mm. Or you think of Andrew and John that first day when they met, they were with John the Baptist, you know? And, Jesus went walking by and, they, and he said, behold the lamb of God, it takes away the sins of the world. Such a profound thing to say to a Jew, right? Behold the lamb, the Passover lamb. Mm-hmm. And so they follow Jesus. And then Jesus looks at them and says, what do you seek? And they say, master, where are you staying? Mm. And he says, come and see. And then St. John, he writes in the scripture there, he says, it was about four in the afternoon. Why does he write that? Well, of course, because he will always remember the day his whole life changed the moment, the hour, his whole life changed. The day he met Jesus and he spent that day with him and he discovered, here's a person I can't live without. Here's the one who helps me understand my whole self, my whole life. Here's the person who reveals to me what is true and good and beautiful. And we don't know even what happened with him that day, but we know that the next day, Andrew goes and finds Peter and says, come and see, we found the Messiah. Right? So I always say, if people realize who Jesus is, and that He's really present here, and that His gift of Himself is present here, mm. they'll they'll never miss Mass. They'll never miss Mass because they'll realize how much they need that. Yeah, you know,
1: and, and how much we all seek healing, and this is one way to receive that, um, which is so. I think it's so great that you guys are putting together this three, you know, the Eucharistic revival over these next three years. Um, how do you think we got here? I mean, why is it that almost 70% of all Catholics don't believe? I mean, it's obviously it didn't happen overnight. It's, it's happened over many, many years and uh, maybe even multiple generations. So, what do you, how, what, what is your assessment and how could we prevent it from happening in the future? And, and obviously, we have to build toward where we once were, right?
5: Yeah, you know, there you're right, there are a lot of complex reasons. Um, certainly a lot of it has to do with the simple secularization of society, right? So, we are just living in a society that has become, um, in a certain way completely materialistic, and by that, I don't mean like just folk, I mean, they only see the material world and they don't believe in a transcendent world. We're living in a world where, um, People have come become very certain ways comfortable, and, and in that sense, they begin to seek happiness and imagine happiness in very worldly ways. Um, of course, this has always been a temptation for people, but I think especially in our culture, where we just have so much comfort and wealth, you know, um, it actually it actually kind of promises people that you can find happiness simply in the things of this world. Now, that's never true, and everyone who tries it ends up unhappy but the world sort of lets people believe that that might be the case. And then you also have in certain ways, a kind of um, failure in catechesis that happened, I think in certain generations yeah. you know, during the sixties, and 80s and eighties and nineties and even beyond, we've just had some kind of failure in catechesis and a real failure to pass on the faith. And, um, so, uh, we're not, you know, the, the Catholic church isn't the only one experiencing disaffiliation, mm-hmm. right? Um, lots of religions are experiencing, in fact, almost all of them. Yeah. It's a very interesting thing, of course, because fewer people go to church than ever and fewer people are happy than ever, <laughs> right? All the studies show that young people don't go to church more than, and they also show that they're more unhappy. Yeah. Um, yeah and, yeah. of course, we would say these things go together because of the lack of a experience of my own transcendence. Um, but I, I think... You know, uh, all of that has had an impact. Um, and then just the general, you know, lack of trust in institutions, which hasn't been helped even by the failures of the church uh, over the past several decades, has created more reasons to, to not seemingly not trust the church. Mm-hmm.
1: There's something you said. I, I have an idea, Bishop, I'm going to share with you. There was something that you said that was part of my reversion. I had some distance from the Catholic Church uh, in my mid-30s and 40s. Uh, not that I wasn't practicing, but I wasn't really engaged uh, as an authentic Catholic. Mm-hmm. So you had said when you were a young kid, six or seven, you genuflect, you know, in front of the tabernacle, mm-hmm. right? So this is my, uh, this is my thought. Uh, I think in part, the problem is uh, lack of reverence across the board. And I'm going to share a story with you. So Part of me returning back to the uh, Catholic Church is I went on this retreat with my family. I'm sure you might have known a Catholic family land in Ohio. Uh, There's sort of, it's like a retreat for families and whatnot. And uh, I was brought there with my kids and my wife was really on board. And one thing I noticed uh, when everyone was going up to receive the Eucharist, they, I mean, these are kids six, seven, eight years old. They were falling to their knees and receiving the Eucharist on the tongue that example, I, I, even thinking about it now, puts tears in my eyes because I could not believe that they were doing that. And then their parents did that. I said, there's something here. There's something going on. There's something like that I'm not aware of. So, uh, and I think this is across the board. I think there's a lack of reverence in our clergy. I think there's a lack of reverence in, mm-hmm. in, in our, our adults. And even within the church, diocesan people, that mm-hmm. I think— that could be a start. If we start being reverent to the creator of the universe in the form of the Eucharist, that's gonna that's gonna make at least people think. You know, yeah. I, I wanted to share that with our listeners because I, I think um leading by example is is really, really important, especially today when we have so wow. so far to trek uh to bring people back to understanding the relevance and the beauty and the importance of the Eucharist, you know?
5: So I, I'm really Absolutely, you know. We revere what we love, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, reverence is a sign of love. Yeah. And um, Amen. reverence for our fa- parents, you know, yeah. reverence for what we love. What, yeah. And uh, absolutely, if we are re- more reverent at Mass, that's going to show and testify to our love. Amen. And Amen. it's exactly what happened in your case. And the more we can do that, the better.
1: Yeah. I'm so excited about... Um, you know, this program that the bishops are putting together with you, uh, spearheading it. Uh, as you know, we put together our own program called Behold, which you endorsed and you support. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a three-night program where we um, have the Blessed Sac- Sacrament exposed. We have mass reconciliation. We have music from our Area of Hope music team. Um, and we have powerful talks. And we're doing this all over the country. So we're really excited about bringing this to various dioceses. Um, how can mm-hmm. you share— like, what is it that you're doing in this program to let diocese know that this is important? We need to be on board because I'm I'm finding out even locally in in the Northeast that there's some parishes that are, don't even aren't even aware of what's going on and say, hey, you know, this is a whole revival, guys. Like, let's let's mm-hmm. get on board. So, what what are you guys doing to draw the attention uh, and share your mission? Uh, and what can we do as a lay apostolate to really promote it and let people know about the mission of the revival?
5: Yeah, well, we we've said from the beginning that we're starting to we're trying to start a fire, not a program. And uh yeah. really we've had a kind of top-down, bottom-up strategy from the beginning. So we do have point persons in 80% of the diocese around the country. And these are people who, you know, the bishop has appointed to kind of animate, spread material throughout the diocese this spring we will be making a big push to get point persons in parishes, right? People who we will be able to organize parish teams, be able to organize things for the parish year, which is the second year of the revival, this first year being the diocesan year. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, as we're uh, pushing out those kind of programmatic aspects through the point persons at the diocesan level and at the parish level, we've just asked apostolates like yours and others to be involved and to be creative and to do what you do best, Right. Because we know you love the Eucharist, we know you have a lot to share, and so use the Eucharistic Revival as an opportunity to be able to share that and to invite people to experience it, because if everybody's involved, we're going to have a much bigger impact. And I don't think there's ever been a a, a program like this out of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, where we've sort of just invited everyone to participate, right? And so you have lots of different apostolates producing in, in, material, and then we're we're trying to share that material on our website.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: We do have a really excellent website uh, yeah. called, Nash, it's also called EucharisticRevival.org, EucharisticRevival.org, and really would encourage your listeners to go there and to sign up, to receive our weekly newsletter, uh, to become a prayer partner. We have thousands of prayer partners, and we meet once a month on Zoom to invite them to pray for the revival. And we also would invite you to become a Eucharistic missionary, and these are people who we're going to form and help train to be able to share their faith in the Eucharist. And so uh, the there's a weekly newsletter, and we use that newsletter to push out information about various apostolates, various groups, things that are happening. There's also a uh, what we call the lead platform on our website, which really gives a lot of practical ideas for people who are leaders, whether that's in the diocese or the parish, things that they can do to be a part of the revival. And then there's a whole learn platform, which just has courses on the Eucharist from some of the best teachers in our country. I have a course there on the Eucharist. Uh, we have, you know, all the big names are there. Father Mike Schmitz, big uh, Bishop Barron, uh, lots from the Augustine Institute and the Franciscan University of Steubenville. They have lots of courses just for people to learn more. Sometimes just a talk you might want to listen to. Um, but there's incredible opportunities to learn about the Eucharist. So uh, where we do need help, you're right, is this kind of grassroots penetration. So ask your pastor if he's had, heard about it. If you're planning on doing something during the parish year, mm-hmm. the parish year begins this coming summer.
0: Mm-hmm. So it
5: begins June of 23 through uh, June of 24.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
5: and so, uh, you know, we really encourage people to find ways to involve their parishes. But even if your parish isn't involved, you can sign up on our website. You can become a missionary. There are lots of uh, ways to, to be engaged in it.
1: Yeah, th- I mean, that, that's awesome. And I want to share with our viewers and listeners um, the, the links that you mentioned are on the Array of Hope website already uh, to link them immediately toward uh, these programs that you're stating, which is really, really important. Is there anything that's else great. you want to share with our viewers and listeners that maybe we haven't spoke about that's on your heart that you think is really important that we should put out there?
5: Yes. So the high point of this national Eucharistic revival is going to be the 10th national Eucharistic Congress. And we're going to gather 80,000 or more Catholics in Indianapolis, Indiana, July 17 to 21, 2024. And it's going to be a kind of world youth day style. If you're familiar with that, you know, every evening there'll be incredible events in the the stadium there, 80,000 people. And mornings, we'll have language groups and age groups with masses and catechesis, and then we'll have really like a festival with all kinds of evangelistic opportunities. It's going to be the Catholic event of this generation, and it's also, you know, a revival is really a work of the Holy Spirit, and, you know, God is the one who revives hearts, and so what we want to do is ask him to do that. And we're going to come together as the Church United States and ask him to send his Holy Spirit upon us and to revive hearts. And we expect that there'll be healings. And we expect that people who don't know even about God will be converted. And we expect that there'll be new missionary fire born in the church, which is our real goal. And actually, that's going to be preceded by a national Eucharistic pilgrimage. So we're going to process the Blessed Sacrament across the country from four parts of the country. We're going to start from San Francisco and we're going to start in New Haven, Connecticut at the tomb of Blessed Michael McGivney and we're going to start at Brownsville, Texas on the border with Mexico and we're going to start at the headwaters of the Mississippi in Lake Itasca State Park which is in my diocese, Crookston, Minnesota. And we're going to process as much as possible on foot the Blessed Sacrament to Indianapolis for that Congress and we're going to pray for our country And we're going to invite people to come and walk with us. We're going to invite young people to walk with us for months if they want. And to be a part of this pilgrimage that really is an act of intercession for God's healing power for our church and for our country. I think that prophetic action is going to have a big impact. Um, So this is, I think, really an exciting moment for the U.S. church, a, a generational moment. And I hope people will get involved.
1: Yeah, that sounds awesome, Mama Mia! I'm gonna have to get in shape to make that pilgrimage. You know, <laughs> really start get my walking in. I, this is awesome, and we're gonna be part of that Congress with you guys in 2024. So I'm super pumped about that. And and, and I, you know, uh, there, there are a lot of there are a lot of people that all you hear these days is discouragement and and things about the church that they're upset about. But there's so much hope. This is the hope, guys. This is it. You know, mm-hmm. that we are doing stuff as a church that is really uh, inspirational, and this is one. So we have give we have mm-hmm. to give credence to this and follow uh, the lead of our bishops. and And this is all good. This is all good stuff. So, uh, uh, Bishop, you know, thank you for you know spending this time with us. Uh, uh, You're a pleasure. Uh, we really admire you and your vocation, and 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 know that here at Array of Hope, we pray for our religious, we pray for our bishops, our clergy every day. Uh, so you have
5: our support. Thank you, Mario. Really appreciate it. God bless. God bless you. So I am so
1: glad that you joined us for this episode. I want to remind you to please share this podcast with others. Let everyone know. We need as many people as possible to know God better. Also comment in the comment sections. Please give us your endorsement. It really helps us. We also ask you to prayerfully consider going to our donation page and helping us in our work. Just go to our website at arrayofhope.org. Also join us on social media where it keeps us all connected to our faith through music, videos, and daily reflections. Lots of great stuff to share with you all. We pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet every day on Instagram at 3 p.m. So please join us as we pray as a universal church. Our guest next time is Jeff Cavins. He is a biblical scholar. He's going to help us understand the scriptures and how we can live them in our daily lives. So thanks for joining us today. And there's always a reason for hope. This is Mario Costabile. Until next time, peace be with you.